You can uh, open up to Matthew chapter 5, continuing on in our Beatitudes. Uh, We're going to be in verse 8 this morning. Uh, But before I dive into the Word, uh, honestly, I just want to say thank you. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I had the uh, privilege uh, of sharing from God's Word, Matthew 5, 4. uh, And honestly, that was one of the more emotional, (laughs) raw messages that I've uh, ever preached. And uh, so many... Uh, people have come up to us asking uh, how our daughter's doing, um, uh, prayers, notes, encouragements. Um, really, truly, you have been the church to us, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, she's doing quite well. Um, we're still learning. We're still understanding. Uh, God is using it as he does to teach us and refine us and to squeeze out all the things that are not honoring to him. Um, and so it's good, and he's used many of you um, to be good to us. So truly, thank you. I want to start off uh, really by asking, uh, how many of you have heard the, the, the phrase, the heart wants what it wants? Anybody ever heard that? How many have used that to justify, uh, let's say, uh, handles ice cream? <laughs> Listen, the heart wants what it wants. And uh, let me just say, I'm right there with you. Uh, I know from experience that you can actually have Handel's ice cream door dashed to you after your kids go to bed. Listen, the heart wants what it wants. Uh, You know, uh, originally, Emily Dickinson wrote those words uh, to comfort a friend whose husband was uh, away for a long period of time. It was later uttered by uh, Woody Allen to brush aside some genuinely creepy behavior. Uh, And it was recently been co-opted by Selena Gomez in a pop song. But in almost every circumstance, the heart wants what it wants, carries with it a little bit of rebellion or a little bit of lament. Uh, I might wish it didn't, but the heart wants what it wants. Wish it didn't, but eh, it does. Or you may not like it, but the heart wants what it wants. I want to look at that a different way this morning. Why does the heart want what it wants? What should the heart want? That's what we're going to dive into in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is so good, and it has already been a wonderful morning gathering together as a church to worship you and to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as we continue on that uh, we'll see truth in your word. Lord, that your Holy Spirit, we know that he is present and he is active. Lord, uh, convict us. Reveal to us. Illuminate your scripture to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, uh, as we've been talking through this this whole series, uh, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, those are uh, descriptive before they are prescriptive meaning that they describe who we are becoming in Jesus Christ more than they are commands for us to follow. And so as I'm standing up here preaching this morning, uh, there isn't like a do this and you'll be okay with God. It's more of a uh, let's understand what God is revealing to us and what that means about those who are in Christ. So uh, I want to humbly ask you as we walk through this passage and others, uh, don't be thinking, what do I need to do? Instead, be asking, who am I? And who is God? And how do I know him? 
Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 3 to kind of uh, get a little backdrop again. Uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I've read that, uh, that beatitude a bajillion times. And I confess that I, I think after studying it this week, I've misread it almost every time. Not, not misread it, probably just didn't understand the full depth of what Jesus is saying there. Isn't that the amazing part of God's word? That I can read it and it can be fruitful and helpful and true, and yet the more I read it, the more God's Holy Spirit illuminates it and I see something totally differently. Blessed are the pure in heart. So in order to understand what Jesus Christ is saying, I think we have to start with the context in the culture into what he was speaking. Namely, what is the biblical heart? To understand blessed are the pure in heart, I have to understand what the heart is. So number one, biblically, your heart is your inner self. It is who you are. Now, there's a difference between the modern Western usage of the word heart and the biblical Middle Eastern usage of that same word. And it's important when we kind of get into this that we remember Jesus Christ is not speaking to you. He's speaking to a group of people. And that group of people would have been first century Jews, including disciples and skeptics and priests and Pharisees all of whom would have had an understanding of the word at that time. But words change, right? How many of you use the word literally? To not mean literally. In fact, that has happened so frequently that uh, Webster's Dictionary has actually changed the definition of the word literally. If you look it up, there is a secondary usage, which is uh, to provide emphasis for something that is not literally possible. <laughs> and everybody under 30 is like, yeah, what are you talking about? It's the only way I ever use literally. Because words change. And so the word heart, as it was used centuries ago, is not the same as the way we use it now. See, for our modern world, the word heart is informed by our modern understanding of physiology. We understand that the heart is the organ that pumps blood all throughout the body. We understand that the, uh, uh, the stomach is what we use to digest food. We understand that the brain is what we use to think. Therefore, when we use the word heart, normally in our context, we're using it to describe uh, passion, desire, affection, our emotions. And if we read that understanding into the word, then it can become blessed are the pure in emotion. Or blessed are the pure in desire. But that is severely limiting what Jesus Christ is trying to get across. See, in the Middle Eastern biblical usage of the word heart, it is far broader. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of your entire inner self. Out of it flows your personality and everything else. It encapsulates the entirety 
of your inner self. Uh, there's uh, some great uh, Greek-English dictionaries that you can use to understand this. And so I wanted to throw one up there. Uh, as I was talking this through with my wife, she's like, you know, if you put that up there, you're going to have to explain it. Like, it took me all week to get it, to throw up words like this. I'm not expecting. Uh, but I wanted to show you because I think it's really important, again, to understand what Jesus Christ is saying. So the Lonita, a Greek-English lexicon, says this, that the heart is the causative source of a person's psychological life in all of its various aspects, but with special emphasis on the thoughts. What they're saying is there that the heart is the place where everything on the inside begins. Your heart is the entirety of your intellect and your understanding. Your heart is the entirety of your motivations. Your heart is the entirety of your desires. It is who you are on the inside. A couple of verses that just kind of illustrate this. 1 Corinthians 14 says, The secret thoughts of his heart will be brought into the open. So if it's just about emotions and desires, how does your emotions and desires have thoughts? Clearly, it's more than that. 2 Corinthians says, Each person should give in his, what he has decided in his heart. Matthew, uh, Jesus continues and says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? It is the entirety of who you are on the inside. And what you do, the way you behave, the actions you take, how you conduct yourself with others, all of that flows from your heart. How patient you are with your little kids. How honest you are with your taxes. How giving you are with your resources. How you spend your time when no one's looking. How forgiving you are towards your spouse. How hard you work at your job. All of that comes directly from your heart. Luke chapter 6 verse 45 said it this way, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, who you are, your biblical heart, who you are, determines what you do. Let me say it another way. Your heart drives your car. The car of your life, your heart, is your driver. It determines where you go, how you get there, what you do along the way. Your heart is you. Now... Why am I up here obnoxiously hammering home this point? Because if we misunderstand the word, then we misunderstand the point. Blessed are those who have pure desires is right and good, but it is not what Jesus Christ is telling us. Blessed are those who have been purified from the inside out is a lot bigger, a lot deeper and frankly, a lot scarier. Because blessed are the pure in heart is everything. And because your heart is driving the car, I got to tell you, your heart is a terrible driver. I mean, truly awful. Which leads us to point number two. Number one, biblically, your heart is your inner self. It's who you are. Number two, naturally, your heart is wicked. 
and it must be purified. The natural state of our hearts, of your heart, of my heart, of my kids' hearts, of everyone I've ever met, the natural state of the heart is to seek out our own wicked desires. Your heart in its natural state will drive you straight into a ditch. Jeremiah said it this way, in response to the continued, I mean like just continued idolatry and treachery of the nation of Israel, he described it this way in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, unless we think that uh, the inability to understand the heart applies to God, he continues and says, The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. Fun little fact, the word there is kidneys. They really had no idea what was happening inside the body. The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The natural state without Christ of every man, woman, and child in the world is a broken and sinful heart. An impure heart. All of your sin comes from your heart. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, all of it. Your heart is in the driver's seat and your heart is the problem. If I can get on a soapbox for a second. That's why you should never, ever tell anyone to follow their heart. That is the worst advice you can give them. That's right. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Lord. Thus, the heart must be purified. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have been purified from the inside out. See, we can often think that my circumstances are the problem. Imagine that as your life. We grab a few of these. I use red ones because, well, that's your sin. That's what's in your heart. And it's not good. And see, we can often think that, well, it's my circumstances that are the problem. Or it's my neighbor that's the problem. Or it's my spouse that's the problem. But the reality of it is what the Bible is teaching us and what Jesus Christ is trying to ram home is that your heart is the problem. When you are in a circumstance where your life is getting pinched, when you're tempted to sin, what comes out of you is what was in you. When I yell at my kids, it's not my kids' problem. It's my heart's problem. When I struggle to forgive my spouse, it's not my spouse's problem. It's my heart's problem. When, say, for example, you are leaving for church in the morning and it's been a little stressful and so your right foot is a little heavy and just saying, and you know, if you get pulled over on the way to preaching, what happens, <laughs> that's not the cop's problem. 
this morning. <laughs> That's my heart's problem. <laughs> and yet how I respond to it in that moment is also a reflection on the state of my heart. Because who you are is what you do. And Jesus Christ is saying that the heart must be purified. So now the next question is, how does one purify their heart? And as so many things in God's word, we don't. God does. A perfect example of this is in Psalm 51, and I would love for you to turn there with me because we're going to spend just a minute in Psalm 51. This psalm was written by David, and many of you know the backstory. This is after he is confronted by Nathan uh, about his sin with Bathsheba, and the Holy Spirit brings tremendous conviction. And so right after that moment, he writes these words, and I think they are instructive for us as an example to follow. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your justice, in your judgment. Everything I receive, I have coming. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. My sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, in the inside, in all of this. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than so. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Just take that for a minute. The bones you have broken, the consequences of my sin, the way you have chosen to discipline me in the midst of my wicked heart, let me take joy over that. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When David is saying, create in me a clean heart, he is saying, create in me a completely new heart, a pure heart. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, David begins with the complete and utter recognition of his sin. Not just the action, but his entire being of sinfulness. It was the state of his inner man that led to the sinful behavior. And he wasn't just asking God to forgive him and to move on. He's broken and mourning and asking God to create in him a new and pure heart. It's the same idea of new creation in the New Testament. We confess all of this and everything else, and God replaces the heart with a pure heart. And it's only through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we can be made pure. 
Jesus Christ creates in us a pure heart. We cannot purify ourselves, but we try so hard. See, our struggle is that we often act like the, the beatitude is blessed are the pure in conduct. And so we try to control our behavior. We try to go the opposite direction. Blessed are the pure in conduct, so, and for they shall please God. We try to sin less or do more good, thinking that's what's going to make me pure. But we've already said conduct flows from the state of my heart. So a pure heart results in pure conduct. And I think it's important because this is exactly what Jesus Christ is speaking into. I think in many ways he's speaking this beatitude to slam an exclamation point on this point. It is not your behavior that makes you pure. It is not your behavior that brings you to see God. Included in the crowd that was listening were the Pharisees. These men were the religious elite, and oftentimes in the church we look at them and judge them and in doing so become them. That's an aside. Uh, and, you know, perhaps rightfully so. But I do think we have more in common with them than I would care to admit. These men were all about keeping the religious law. I can promise you they have more discipline in their pinky finger than I have in the entirety of my body. In their desire to be righteous, they would go above and beyond seven times. I'll forgive you 77 times. The problem with the Pharisees was not their behavior. You'd look at them and see them as the most righteous among us. The problem with the Pharisees was that their righteousness came from self. In the most literal sense, they were self-righteous. It came from outer behavior, but their insides were as wicked as ever. And Jesus Christ was having absolutely none of it. In Matthew 23, verse 25 through 28, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. First allow Christ to purify your heart that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. That is not a compliment. (laughs) Which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, what the Pharisees did and what I think we so often do is we look at this as my life, my heart, and instead of allowing the truth of Jesus Christ to purify me from within, we just try to kind of pop the cap off here. A 
Look, I'm good. Any of you look at that? It's white. It's pure. They're following the Lord. All the good things are happening in their lives, but on the inside, nothing has changed. Jesus is exploding that entire way of life. It is not your externals that allow you to see God, but the internal state of your heart. And those who are pure in heart have been purified by God. Purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Continually made more holy through sanctification, through the Spirit, His Word, His people, those who have been purified by the heart really and truly will be increasingly pure in desire and increasingly pure in conduct. But those aren't the goals. Your goal isn't to be pure in conduct, although that should be the result. Those are the results. A pure heart. That's what God is after, and he's the one that does it. And the promise on the other side of the purifying work is more incredible than anyone could possibly have imagined. Number three, God himself is the satisfaction your heart seeks perfectly and completely. See, this parable echoes the words of David in Psalm 24 when he says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's a good question. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. God is the focus. God is the object of our attention and our affection. See, I, I love words, and that's probably not surprising to you in any way. Um, I appreciate language and structure and phrasing, uh, and especially as I'm like crafting an outline, uh, I try to choose the words carefully. And this week, I really struggled because the subject of the first two points is your heart. Biblically, what is your heart? Naturally, what is the state of your heart? And that's, I think, rightfully so, because that's the structure of the beatitude, but that is not the focus of the beatitude. The focus of the beatitude is the blessed promise that this certain type of person, the pure in heart, is the one who will see God. That's the focus. So much of our human existence is striving and working and preparing, looking for any moment of pleasure and satisfaction, and it always just seems so fleeting. Because that's what happens when I am the focus. Get a little bit depressing for a minute. You ever stop to ask yourself why? Here's the life cycle. I'm born. I grow. I hopefully learn enough to support my family and myself. I marry and raise a few kids. As I get older, hopefully I can enjoy life a little bit. 
experience some pleasure and satisfaction, raise my kids to do the same. Eventually, I'll get old and frail, hopefully. But then I'll probably start thinking about legacy and impact. Hopefully, the children of my children will remember me. But once the people who knew me pass on, I'll probably be forgotten. The world will still continue to spin. Feels a little bit pointless, doesn't it? You know why it feels a little bit pointless? Because you were made for more than that. We were made to connect and commune with the divine God who created us. In the church, we mix this up when we confuse activity for God with communion with God. And I confess, I mess that up quite a lot. I think this is what Jesus is driving after. Seeing God is the blessing. Seeing God is the ultimate blessing. It's the tip of the pyramid. It's the top of the mountain. It's literally the complete and total satisfaction that my heart seeks. Seeing God is the blessing. The entirety of the Old Testament prophets were trying to see God. And Jesus says in a sentence, here's how it happens. That is unbelievable. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I look back on the major movements of faith in my life, I can see some of the broad brushstrokes that God is doing. And I would say truly and honestly, the last four or so years have been about being satisfied in the person of God, in God himself. And I don't think I could have stood up here and said to you, it's worth it 10 years ago. But seeing God is the blessing. I find full and complete rest and satisfaction for my weary, striving, ambitious soul only in the vision of the divine God for who I was built to long. The heart wants what it wants. And what a pure heart truly wants and what a pure heart is promised to receive is God himself. Thomas Aquinas said it this way, human beings are not perfectly happy as long as something is left for them to desire and seek. Ultimate and perfect happiness and satisfaction cannot exist, consist in anything other than a vision of the divine. I remember a time several years ago when I was really struggling and I was especially driven and achievement-oriented, and I found my identity in what I was trying to accomplish. My wife asked me this question, when will it be enough? You know the honest answer to that question? Never. St. Augustine postured, whatever we do, whatever we do well, Whatever we strive for, whatever praiseworthy objects we are zealous about, once we attain to the vision of God, we won't seek such things anymore. 
What, after all, is there to seek if you've got God? And this is the one that cut me. Or what you, will you be with content? What, what will you be content with if you are not content with God? We want to see God. We are on fire to see God. Who isn't? But notice what it says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is enough. Seeing God is the blessing, and it is the satisfaction that my heart seeks. So what do we do with this? This week, I just want you to pursue God. And frankly, I don't really even care how you do it. We have been given his word. Be in it. We've been given creation. Be in it. But do so for the purpose of seeing God. Do a study. Take a prayer walk. Get away with your phone off. No music, notifications, distractions. Listen, pray, journal. Whatever you do, do it in order to pursue God, to know him more. If you do that, I promise it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Lord, create in us a clean heart. Create in us a pure heart. Lord, we are so quick to wickedness and to sin we are so quick to self-righteousness. Look what I'm doing. At least I'm not like them. We are so drawn to lesser blessings. So satisfied with trash. Lord, we long to be satisfied in your presence. Let this be increasingly true of us. Let us be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name we pray.